I want you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter. 1 Peter. We are conducting, for any of you who do not know, a series of expositional messages on the book of 1 Peter. And we have ended a major section of Peter's first letter at chapter 3, verse 12. And we've talked about many, many things up to this section. And we begin this morning in chapter 3, verse 13, running really all the way through chapter the rest of chapter 3 and all the way through chapter 4 on the theme of suffering. Suffering. And I've entitled the message this morning, What Are We to Make of Suffering? What are we to make of suffering? And before we venture into the next crucial section on suffering from 1 Peter, I want to prepare you for what lies ahead in this letter regarding this general theme of suffering. There are some things that we've already talked about with regard to suffering in chapters 1 and 2. There are also some things, of course, that we will speak on regarding suffering in chapter 5. And in this major section in chapters 3 and 4, we will endeavor to speak much about suffering. But I thought what would be best for us today, a good study, is what we might call a biblical theology of suffering from Peter's perspective. A biblical theology is taking a particular topic like suffering and looking at a particular author of the Bible and seeing what he has to say, generally speaking, on the matter of suffering. And along the way, I believe we can derive some principles, some general principles on suffering, which will help us as we come to these individual texts on that same subject. In other words, what I want to do this morning is set the table for you to understand generally Peter's concepts of suffering. And we could do that, of course, by going to the individual texts. But I want to do an overview this morning, sort of taking the the helicopter, as it were, and moving it up to its highest level so that we could see a panoramic perspective of Peter on suffering. It's a major subject of the Christian life. It's a major topic on the minds of many, many people. It's, of course, a major theme on the minds of people who are undergoing intense suffering presently in our world. And we would do well to understand it, not just to understand them and how they live, but also to understand ourselves. And especially if we in America undergo potentially in the future more intense suffering and persecution for our faith. And in order for us to begin to understand that, I want you to listen this morning to the penetrating words of Dan McCartney in his book, Why Does It Have to Hurt? The Meaning of Christian Suffering. He sets the table for us in trying to understand some of these matters. Listen to his words. Why did my father, one of the kindest, most humble, most genteel men I have ever known, have to endure the horrible prolonged agony of cancer in his bones? Why does my friend, 
A godly man struggling with cancer have to endure the added burden of his son's addiction to cocaine. Why was a four-year-old child who was adopted at birth and growing up in a stable home taken from the only parents he has ever known and given to his biological father by some judge in contradiction of the state's adoption laws? And why did that biological father who pursued this legal travesty then abandon the child? Why does God allow extremists who call themselves Christians to blow up buildings with little kids inside? Why are little kids in the city randomly shot in shootouts between drug dealers? Why does God inflict not just momentary suffering, but generations of suffering? By taking a mother away from her young children. Why does God permit things like the genocide in Rwanda, the torture and execution of millions of Jews in Germany, the Armenian massacre in Turkey, the famine and fighting in Somalia, or the destruction of millions of not yet born infants by the injection of salt into their brains or a host of other horrors? These questions are hard enough, but it gets even harder when you or someone you deeply love suffers personally. Then the questions become excruciating. Suffering raises the deepest questions of life, of meaning, of reality, of truth, of personhood. It is natural to ask such questions. In fact, it is unnatural not to ask them. We instinctively recognize that suffering ought not to be. We know that something is wrong. Suffering is one of the deep, disturbing mysteries of life. Some mysteries, like why some stars appear older than the universe, bother astrophysicists but do not touch us. The mystery of suffering, however, confronts everyone. It is a problem for all seasons. Both Christians and non-Christians face this mystery, but it is a particularly crucial question for Christians who believe that God is both good and all-powerful. The meaning of suffering is not only important for our defending Christianity before the world, it is perhaps the hardest question of all for Christians to answer for themselves. We are psychologically incapable of leaving this question alone. Suffering gets personal. We may ignore it for a while, but as soon as we experience suffering, the question comes back as insistently as ever. And when we or someone we love suffers greatly and the world appears senseless and God is as remote as He can be, the question becomes all-consuming. The question why becomes why me? How can we make sense out of something that appears so senseless? Christians must think about these questions. Suffering generates feelings that are often jumbled and incoherent. And to make sense of things and bring order to our feelings, we need truth. And to find truth, we must turn to the Scriptures. Very, very wise words. 
and words which are very, very important for all of us. For all of us either have or will suffer. We need truth. Just as Professor McCartney says, we need truth and we need the truth of the Scriptures. And this morning, I want you to see four principles on suffering from 1 Peter. Four principles that I can derive from Peter's telling us, teaching us, exhorting us on the matter of suffering. And each of these, I believe, are principles which arise directly from each of their contexts here in Peter's first letter and show us, I think, the varied nature of the biblical position on suffering itself. Now, I'm going to try as hard as I can not to go outside of first Peter. There is much in the Bible on suffering. There's much in the book of Job on suffering, of course. Uh, There's much in Jesus' own teaching on suffering. And of course, Peter has borrowed much of what he has taught here from Jesus himself. Very similar language to the Sermon on the Mount. But we will confine ourselves to what Peter says since we're studying 1 Peter. Here's the first principle on suffering that I find from Peter's first letter. The Christian who suffers is blessed by God. Simple principle, and it is clearly given to us in Peter's writing, the Christian who suffers is blessed by God. Now that may be one of the first principles that you you and I might struggle with as Christians. We might want to say, especially as Dan McCartney has written and has taught us through that quote, If we ourselves see suffering around in the world, we may not take it too personally. And we may not then be able to say, yes, those people are blessed by God. And harder still, when we ourselves are personally grappling grappling with suffering, we are tending as Christians to say, how is it that in this suffering, in my suffering, I am really, truly, genuinely being blessed by God? But Peter says it is so. He says it is so. Look at 1 Peter 3, verse 12. We'll catch a little bit of the context here before we explain verse 13, which is where we are going to start next time we study 1 Peter expositionally. 1 Peter 3.12 says this, For the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and His ears attend to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now you remember from last time that that is the verse upon which we ended the last section of 1 Peter. And it sets for us the context of two kinds of people. There are those whose eyes are on the Lord and therefore His eyes are toward them. That means favorably toward. He's given over to them. He's protecting them. He's loving them. He's blessing them. And then the other kind of person that is listed here in verse 12 is the wicked person. The wicked person It says at the end of verse 12, the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So you have these two kinds of people in the world. 
the one for whom the the Lord's eyes or his favor or his blessing are toward them, and even his ear attends to their prayers, their cries, even their cries in the midst of their suffering and their persecution. He is for them. He is about doing good to them, about hearing their prayers, about attending to their needs because they are in right standing with Him. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. There are people in the world who perpetrate evil, who want to do what they can to subvert the plan and purpose of God. And it is those people for whom the Lord's face is against. He's for the righteous. He's against those who do evil. And what will be some of that evil that is perpetrated against the righteous? Verse 13. Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? Now, if you only took that one verse and you isolated it from its context, you might assume that what Peter is saying here is that if you do good, if you prove zealous for what is good, there is no one to harm you. But notice verse 14. But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness. You see, verse 13 is not saying that there will never be any harm against those who are proving zealous for what is good. There are people in the world who are proving zealous for what is good, and they are also suffering. It's not a guilt-edge guarantee. It's not a locked and secure position that if you are a good doer, if you are a righteous person, you will not be harmed. That's simply saying that generally speaking, people will not be harmed for doing what is good, generally speaking. But, verse 14, even if you should suffer... See, we might say in the United States of America, at least up to this point, that we have experienced singular blessing in the life and history of this country because we have more often than not not suffered harm for doing what is good. That's, generally speaking, our condition in the USA. But, even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, some of you will suffer. And when you suffer for the sake of righteousness, right doing, doing good, doing good works, you are what? Blessed. Blessed. God's favor is upon you. You are going to be blessed in what you do. You're going to suffer, and yet you're going to be blessed. And that's our principle. The Christian who suffers is blessed by God. Read on in verse 14. And do not fear their intimidation, or do not fear their fear, and do not be troubled. But sanctify Christ, set apart Christ, place Christ as Lord in your hearts. In other words, live under the Lordship of Christ. And what should you always be ready to do? You should always be ready to make a defense an apology, a, a defense of the faith, a, a reason for your 
seeing or setting apart or placing Christ as Lord. You're always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. Now, we're going to unpack this as we come to this expositionally. But at least this morning, we want to say this about that text. You are blessed by God if your focus is not on your suffering, but on your opportunity to make a defense for the hope that is in you. That's Christianity. Christianity is not a focus upon your suffering. Christianity is a focus upon the hope that is in you, even if it is in the midst of suffering. God says, I will bless you. I will protect you. I will be favorable toward you, you righteous person, even in the midst of your suffering for the sake of righteousness. And I want your focus to be submitting to the Lordship of Christ. He's in charge. He's the master. He's the boss. He's the one who's in charge. He will orchestrate all of the events of the world, including your suffering. And what you're to focus upon is being ready always to make an apology for the faith, a defense, an account for the hope that is in you with gentleness and reverence. When someone is is harming you, uh, when someone is perpetrating evil against you, persecuting you for the sake of your faith, you are to make a defense for the hope that is in you, not to malign them, not to speak evil against them. In fact, doesn't he say in verses 8 and 9, not returning evil for evil, insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead? How can you give a blessing? If you understand that God is blessing you. That's how you can give a blessing. You can understand that God is at that moment blessing you. You are blessed. Even when you're persecuted. Why? Because you've set apart the Lord Jesus Christ in your heart And you are ready, always being ready in an ever ready condition of making a defense of the hope that is in you. And what is the hope that is in you? That Jesus Christ as Lord will one day deliver you. That Jesus Christ is delivering you even now in the intense persecution or suffering that you are undergoing. And when you do that, you'll do it with gentleness and reverence. And notice verse 16, and keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, and now we're told it's including their words toward you. It may be physical, it may not be physical, but it certainly is slanderous what they're saying about you. You need to keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior, there it is again, proving zealous for what is good, your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. For it is better if God should will it so that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. Look at chapter 4, verse 14. If you are reviled, that's people speaking slanderously against you. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, that's the sake of Christ, for the cause of Christ. The name of Christ represents all that Christ is. And if you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are what? Blessed. God is favorable toward you. He's going to be and give a blessing to you. Why? Because the Spirit of glory, 
And the Spirit of God rests on you. God's Spirit will attend to your needs. God knows what you need, and He will take care of you. He is, he is disposed favorably toward you. If you're a Christian who suffers, God is in charge. He is blessing even in ways that you might not presently understand. Look at chapter 2, verse 18. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who, those who are unreasonable. For this finds favor or regard or grace. If for the sake of conscience toward God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. You see, God will bless you. God's favor will be upon you. He will be kindly disposed toward those who are bearing up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. And he says, for what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. God's going to bless your life. You undergo trial, temptation, suffering, persecution, slander, reviling. If you do what is right, the Bible says, and as a result of doing the right, suffer for it and patiently endure it, this finds favor or grace with God. You see, the Christian who suffers is going to be blessed by God. God's regard is going to be toward you. You might not always see it. You might not always recognize it. You might not always discern it. But the Bible teaches here in 1 Peter that the blessing of God is upon you if you are suffering. Mark it down as a principle, as a promise from the Word of God. Second principle. Not only will the Christian who suffers be blessed by God, but this is an important one. Number two, the Christian who suffers proves he has had sin's power broken in his life. The Christian who suffers not only is blessed by God, but he also proves he has had sin's power broken in his life. Look at 1 Peter chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, that means Christ suffering in His person. When He was in His incarnated state, when He was, a, when he was the God-man on this earth during the incarnation, that 33-year ministry, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose. In other words, the same purpose of God in Christ's suffering will be the purpose of God in your suffering. Because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. What does that mean? Well, like I said, we'll get to this in due course. But what it's really talking about is a person who has died to his sin in Christ has ceased from sin's domination. That's what it's saying. We know that because of verse 2. A person who has suffered in the flesh 
has ceased from sin, its domination. Why? Verse 2, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. You see, you're not just serving your own lusts anymore. That's what non-Christians do, and that's what we did as non-Christians. We served the lusts of the flesh. We were in bondage to our own lusts. But when you see that the very purpose of Christ's suffering was to deliver you from your sinful bondage, you can actually cease from sin, not from sinning altogether, of course, but from the sinful bondage of your past life so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh that is in your humanness, no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. You're not serving your own will, you're serving the will of God. That's what he's saying. And if you didn't understand that, he says in verse 3, for the time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desires of the Gentiles. That's another way of saying this is what you were in your past life. You pursued a course of sensuality, lusts, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. Every person in their days of the flesh, non-Christians, pursued their own lusts. And he gives a representative list there. Sensuality, lusts, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. That's why I sometimes chuckle, tragically so, when people say, well, it's, it's really not a sin to drink. It's really not a sin to be around those who drink. Even Jesus fellowshiped with wine-bibbers, those who were drinking. But notice what it leads to. Carousing, drunkenness, sensuality, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. You see, he's saying, that's what you used to be. Jesus may have gone to them to witness to them, but He did not involve Himself in their deeds. And He says this was the desire of the Gentiles, the pagans, the people that didn't know God. He says even in verse 4, "...and all this, they, those Gentiles, those pagans, those non-Christian people, they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excesses of dissipation, and they malign you. They start to pressure you. This is peer pressure." but they will give an account to Him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. God is going to judge them. For the gospel has for this purpose been preached even to those who are dead, that though they are judged in the flesh as men, they may live in the Spirit according to the will of God. In other words, when you were dead in your trespasses and sins, God gave you the gospel, and the gospel for the very purpose of delivering you from the bondage of sin, it was preached to you so that though you might be still a human being living in the flesh, you may be receiving the gospel, being delivered from that bondage of sin, so that you may live no longer for the lusts of your flesh, but you may live in the Spirit according to the will of God. You see, the Christians who suffer prove, give evidence that the very suffering that they're undergoing actually proves that they've made a decisive break with sin's power. And you could reverse the idea. Do you struggle with these things? Do you see these as a pattern of your life? It may not be all of these things, but pick out any one of them. Or substitute in this representative list some sinful habit of your life. 
Has it been with you for a long time? Has it been with you forever? Has it been with you for as long as you can remember? Do you have an unbroken pattern of sin in your life? Well, it may be that you haven't had that decisive break from sin. And if you haven't, then it also may be that you haven't really suffered for Christ. Because those who suffer for Christ will be maligned. You see verse 4? And they malign you. They malign you. They tell you that you are not running with them and they're surprised. And that peer pressure is so great. And they say, come on. Come on and do what we used to do. It was so fun. We had such a great time. And the person who comes along and bows, bends to the pressure of the world, and you really have never seen that decisive break with sin, you've pursued a course, he says, of sensuality, a habit of life, a course that means a pattern, and you've really never seen that break, and therefore you may not also be suffering for Christ. But boy, if you are making that decisive break with sin, and someone comes along and says, but don't you want to party? Just like we used to do. Didn't we have so much fun? Wasn't it great? Nobody was hurt. It was okay. And you say, no. No, I'm not going to be involved in that anymore. No, because I'm setting apart Christ as Lord in my heart. I'm now serving Jesus Christ, not myself. I now see myself as having been bought with a price, the price of the blood of Christ. He delivered me from this. And do you know that if you told somebody that, what might they say? Come on, religious zealot, holier than thou. You think you're better than me? You think you're holy? Oh, I could tell you how holy you are. I remember what you used to do, and you could just as well say, yes, that's what I used to do. But that's not what I do now because the good news has been preached to me and I now recognize that for the very purpose of following Christ, He suffered and I too will suffer. And that's a form of it. That's a form of it. But you can take great glory in the fact that if you are suffering, even the intense persecution, the slander and the reviling of people around you, you are actually in that suffering proving that you have had a decisive break with sin's power. It's been broken in your life. Look at verse 14 of chapter 4. We saw it a moment ago. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the Spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Listen to this, verse 15. Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or a thief or evildoer or a troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, I love that word, Christian, Little Christ, Christ one, one who's a follower of Christ, one who's set apart Christ as Lord in his heart. If you are suffering as a Christian, you're not to be ashamed, but you're to glorify God in this name. What name? The name of Christian. Thank you, Lord. Thank you. I'm not a masochist. I'm not saying bring the suffering on, bring the reviling, bring the slander, bring it to me. I'd love it. But you do say this, Lord, if in fact it is brought to me, I can glory in the fact that you 
are supplying your blessing and grace and favor and regard to me, even though I know I don't deserve it. But you have given me the opportunity to be called. This is incredible. A Christian. A Christ follower. A Christ one. One who loves Jesus Christ. One who wants to stand out for Jesus Christ. One who is not interested in doing the things of the world. I'm no longer into sensuality and lusts and drunkenness and carousing and drinking parties and abominable idolatries. I don't want to run with the same crowd anymore into the same excesses of dissipation. And I don't want to malign anyone anymore like I used to with them malign others. I don't want to revile anybody anymore for the name of Christ. You think Paul and Peter would have understood this? Paul certainly would have, wouldn't he? He killed Christians. Peter denied the Lord. He maligned the Lord three times before the cock crowed. Peter knows what he's talking about. Make sure that if you're suffering, he says, don't suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a troublesome meddler. If you're going to suffer, you better make sure you're suffering as a Christian. Somebody who's doing what's right. Someone who's following Jesus Christ. In fact, look at chapter 2, verse 12. We went through this. Keep your behavior excellent among the pagans so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Now, you remember I interpreted that as meaning... That instead of doing the wrong thing, you do the right thing. And when you do, even though they're slandering you at that point, one day when God visits them in the matter of their own salvation, they'll think back to the good works that you did and say, that was used in part to bring me to this place of affirming Jesus Christ. You think good works are important? Absolutely. Absolutely. A Christian who suffers proves that he has had Sin's power broken in his life. Thirdly, the Christian who suffers rejoices in the sure and final outcome of his faith. The Christian who suffers rejoices in the sure and final outcome of his faith. And you notice these ideas here as I'm giving you these principles. The Christian who suffers is being blessed by God. The Christian who suffers proves something. The Christian who suffers rejoices. These are all verbal ideas. You're seeking the blessing of God. You're proving that you're a true Christian because sin's power has been broken in your life. And you also rejoice. The Christian who suffers rejoices in the sure and final outcome of his faith. Look at this. 1 Peter 4.13. This is tremendous principle now. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, in other words, as He suffers, you'll suffer because you're suffering in His stead, in His name, for His sake, for the very purpose that He suffered, you'll suffer. Keep on what? Rejoicing. Keep on rejoicing. Can you imagine those two words in the same sentence? Those two theological ideas wrapped up together, suffering and rejoicing? 
guess what? Only in the Christian life, only within the pale of Christianity, can we say suffering is good and rejoicing in my suffering is even better. To the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. Why? So that also at the revelation of His glory, you may rejoice with exaltation. Praise. Oh, Lord, You delivered me out of them all. You protected me, Lord. You blessed me, Lord. You sent Your favor upon me. I rejoice at the revelation of the glory of Jesus Christ. And I rejoice with praise. Oh, this is, this is how a Christian can get through all those personal suffering questions. That's the answer to Dan McCartney's writing about his own father and his battle with cancer and his own friend and people in Rwanda and the fighting and the famine in Somalia and the wars and rumors of wars and the injustices and the indignities. All of it, all of that can be kept in perspective and we can even rejoice in it because we know that one day there will be a revelation, an unfolding. And what is that? That Jesus Christ will one day come back and right all wrongs. He's going to right all wrongs. The judge, just as Verse 5 of chapter 4 says, they will give an account to Him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. There's going to be a judgment. There's going to be a righting of all wrongs. There's going to be an accounting of all deeds. And if you, to the degree that you share in the sufferings of Christ, you keep on rejoicing, one day you can bow your knee to the Lordship of Jesus Christ and say, I rejoice with praise, Jesus, at what you have done. I can do that. Look at verse 19 of chapter 4. Therefore, those who suffer according to the will of God, I love this, shall entrust their souls to a faithful Creator in doing what is right. Faithful Creator. God is faithful. Keeps all accounts. And if you're under the blood of Jesus Christ, if that's been availed for you, God will be faithful to you. You can rejoice in the sure and final outcome of your faith. What will it be? That Jesus Christ will be revealed in glory and that He'll right all wrongs and whatever suffering you may have undergone in this life will not be worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed in us. Look at chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. You see, Peter says there's a glory and it's coming. It's going to be revealed and God Himself will be vindicated and all of His saints for all of the unjust suffering that they have experienced, they'll be vindicated as well. Now, I know right now, as the psalmist says, how long, O Lord, how long? And even Peter says here in chapter 1, even though you will suffer for a little while, it's on God's timetable, not ours. He's the one who's keeping the timepiece, not us. 
And what we think is slowness, don't count as slowness, Peter says in 2 Peter 3. Don't count it as slowness. Look at verse 4 of chapter 5. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. All Christians, especially Christian leaders here, when you prove to be examples to the flock, when the chief shepherd appears, you'll receive the unfading crown of glory, a crown which is glory. Look at verse 10. You want to rejoice in something? Rejoice in this. After you have suffered for a little while, God's timetable, the God of all grace, this should encourage your heart, the God of all grace who called you to His eternal glory in Christ will Himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. That just about sums it up. He's called you to His eternal glory, which means it'll never end. And He will Himself, by His own hand and by His own power, perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you both now and forever. Wow. This is, this is God's work. This is, this is what you can expect in your suffering if that's what you're undergoing. That's why it says in chapter 1, verse 5, we are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials so that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Christ. Just this paean of praise. Is that the way you live, Christian? Is that the way you interpret trials in your life? Is that the way you perceive suffering? Is that the way you discern persecution? And then fourth and finally, the Christian who suffers trusts in the will and character of God. This is a great place to stop. The Christian who suffers trusts in the will and the character of God. You see, ultimately, no matter what suffering you're undergoing, how intense it is, possibly even losing your life, as so many Christians around the world are doing today, even with the loss of your life, you can entrust your soul to a faithful Creator, the character of God, the impeccable, perfect God. Look at 1 Peter 4.19. Entrusting your soul to a faithful Creator. That's what He is. He's a faithful Creator. He'll do what is right. Look at chapter 2, verse 15. For such is the will of God. You see, you can't get around the fact that God has willed suffering. It is the will of God that by doing right, you may silence the ignorance of foolish men, but you may also suffer for it. Peter says himself in chapter 5, verse 1, I am your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ. I saw him suffer. I know I'm going to suffer. I already have suffered. And history tells us he suffered even by being crucified upside down. Hideous death. But God, He will protect us. You remember when we studied Chapter 2, verse 21, For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in His steps. You see, there's an example to follow. This is God's will that we suffer. 
who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats. What did he do? He kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. You see, if you are a Christian and if you are suffering, you are trusting in the will and the character of God. You're entrusting yourself to him who judges righteously. Look at chapter 3, verse 17. For it is better if God should will it so, and He does for some, that you suffer for doing what is right than for doing what is wrong. You could do right. And sometimes if you do that right, you're going to suffer for it. It is the will of God. Chapter 5, verse 6, Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that He may exalt you at the proper time. You know, sometimes our humiliation is at the hands of suffering. We are humbled. We're brought low by, by virtue of suffering via the suffering that we undergo so that we might be exalted at the proper time. The will and the character of God. He knows us. He knows our frame. He knows what we need. Well, this is a great lesson in theology on suffering, isn't it? And this is just out of First Peter. Just think, if we were able to, to survey the whole sweep of Scripture and what it might teach us about suffering. We, so much, we, we know so much about suffering right now as a result of just a 40-45 minute lesson on what it means to see suffering in First Peter. We could live our whole life long in this Christian pilgrimage on just what Peter has taught us. The theology is there for us. We're going to be blessed by God. We're going to be proving that sin's power has been broken. We're going to see that God has for us a sure and a final outcome to our faith. He's in charge and He's going to bring our suffering to a point of ending so that the glory may be revealed hereafter. And when we suffer at God's hand, even if it's by someone who's perpetrating evil against us, we trust Him because we know it is His will and we trust His character. We entrust our soul to God who judges righteously. Well, that's great theology. And what's better is when you live that theology when you suffer. Let's pray together. Father, that exhortation that you give us is so clear in your word. You tell us that we'll be blessed, that sin's power will be broken, that we can rejoice because you have the end already set, and that our faith will ultimately result in your praise and honor. And we can trust You and Your will and Your character and You will bring us to a place of seeing Your plan unfold and we will see the, the reason for our suffering and we will rejoice in Your goodness. Lord, we know that that doesn't answer every question that comes to us every single time, but it challenges us at our core to understand suffering. And see it as not something to be repelled, something to forsake, but something to embrace. Because it proves to us who we are in light of who You are. Oh, may we learn these lessons as we study verse by verse through this great letter 
and what we will yet learn regarding this suffering. Thank you for this biblical, theological look. And may it be our constant praise of You as we learn new things about You as we suffer. In Jesus' name, Amen.